just to say, don't worry, I have seen what the time is. <laughs> and we've still got the hour left, therefore, would you like to turn? Uh, um, if it's about... Oh, I'm not going to give a time. Just say, start saying amen really loudly and positively if you think I should come into land. We're going to spend some amount of time in one, hey, steady on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which I'll read for just a moment. This is kind of stepping aside from uh, our current uh, preaching series, which is near its conclusion anyway, or one of them at least, in, uh, in the Psalms. I'd like to speak on 1 Corinthians 3, which I'll read, and then, uh, and then we'll get into for a little while. It says this, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready, you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul... And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's uh, spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And for there, I think I will uh, stop. Um, As Chris mentioned at the very beginning of the meeting... This has been a, a wonderful weekend, a special weekend. In, a, uh, in one sense, the spotlight has been on uh, leaders. The spotlight has been on elders, of which there are now three. Uh, hence the uh, round of applause as Chris stood up. Um, because hands were laid on him on Friday night to become uh, one of the leaders, one of the elders of the church, along with myself and, uh, and Richard as well. And... Um, I'd like us to to spend a a bit of time considering that, but from a different angle. A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 133, and we looked at that wonderful song, that celebration uh, that begins, how, you know, behold, look, how pleasant, how good and pleasant it is 
when brothers uh, live together in unity. And we looked at that to apply at, to all of God's people, God's, God's children, brothers and sisters together, dwelling together in unity. We considered the, the anointing and the refreshing that flows when that's happening. And if you like, um, to help us in building uh, church together, in, in, in living together in unity, we have those wonderful encouragements. We also have in other passages some, some warnings. And here is a passage which in a sense contains a, a warning, a correction to the Corinthian church. We've had brothers. It's amazing when brothers live together in unity. We had that wonderful song a few weeks ago. This week we have brothers. I could hardly address you as spiritual. It's like, well, they're brothers. They're together. They're part of a people calling themselves a church, following God's and believing in him. They are in Christ. God has given them new life. God has caused them to be born again into a new hope and to receive forgiveness and to receive his love and to be together as a people, but something's not quite right. Brothers, I could hardly address you as, as spiritual, but as, as worldly. Um, or, or perhaps a better translation would be as, as fleshy. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not kind of behaving in a way or living in a way that is demonstrating the fact that you are a spiritual people. You're still living how you used to live. And this is evident in a couple of ways. One, by their diet. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet, yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Paul's expressing surprise. It's not surprise. It's not a surprise that when a baby is born, they need milk. That's what gets them... That milk is the most amazing substance on the planet in terms of just giving life and giving strength and giving them a healthy start. That's how it's designed. But all parents will know that there comes a point when it's no longer enough. You realize they're, they're eager for more. They're, they're strengthening. They're growing. And so that's going to be reflected in their diet. And so you start pureeing strange things and adding in baby rice and starting to try them with different foods and then finger food and they try broccoli and eventually before too much longer, I don't know why broccoli but that's what came to mind, um, after a while they're eating what you eat. You don't have to digest it for them now. They are eating obviously healthy, nutritious um, food. Paul's expressing surprise then. Well, you haven't seemed to move on in the way that I'd expect. It's like you're, you're still only ready for milk, something that someone else is digesting, someone else is, someone else is, is putting into you. Uh, and you haven't, you haven't moved on. And that's evident in a second way, not just in their diet, but in their behavior as well. How are they behaving? They're, they're squabbling, there's jealousy, there's quarreling. And in particular, it's quarreling about who they follow, about which leaders they prefer, Paul or Apollos. And someone's written in a commentary on this book, one of the major failures of the Corinthian church was its wrong view of leadership. In that regard, he's saying, look, you're still babies, you're still infants, you haven't moved on, you haven't matured. Um, So just to say at the outset, I don't know whether I should say it's about halfway through now, but at the outset, 
We're looking at this not because City Church Sheffield uh, is in the same point, at the same level of maturity. I, I thank God for the healthy um, togetherness and a healthy view of, of leaders that exists um, amongst us in this church. So we aren't babes in that sense. Nevertheless, it's possible for any of us to regress, to take a backward step. This sometimes happens even for grown-ups when they get back together maybe some big special family do or Christmas and you're all back under the same roof again just for a few days even though you're all grown up you're living elsewhere you've all gathered uh, we've all gathered to celebrate and um, mum and dad are there brothers and sisters are there in-laws are around kids are there as well and then sometimes in those moments we can start to regress we can start to go backwards and behave like we used to. And this can be in moments where it's like, that's not fair. Pudding. Flashpoint. That's not fair. She always got the bigger piece. Daniel, they're all the same size. And you're 35 now. <laughs> so you can't just... Alright, okay. Thank you. I see. And sometimes it happens that we kind of just wake up to the fact, oh, I think I've just regressed. I think I've just gone backwards a step. Sometimes that can happen to mature believers and to, to mature uh, grown-ups. And it's in that way I want to just say, well, how, what, what's a healthy view of leadership? In, in this uh, chapter in Corinthians, we kind of get the impression that for many of them, it had this kind of haze almost of, of celebrity. So I, I follow Paul as if he's the absolute best. He's the one. No, no, no. What you've got to understand is all that Apollos brings. No, I, I follow him. He's the guy for me. He's the one on the pedestal. So I'm listening to him. No, you don't want to listen. And so there's this squabbling taking place. It can be like that. And actually in our culture, sometimes that's what comes across. We, we get fed all the time a diet of of celebrity, so that when we consider leaders, we, we, have, we can subtly or subconsciously still have that in mind. The guy or the girl who's, who's up there, who's elevated above everybody, on a stage, all the lights are pointed to them, they're the special one, and they're worthy of admiration, and we kind of bow before them. Perhaps. But actually, I think in, in British culture, Possibly there's more a case of actually reacting to that and being irritated by that. So maybe we're not kind of likely to err that direction. We might kind of go a slightly different direction and just shrink back. Be a bit, a bit wary, a bit suspicious. In a sense, we're still kind of putting the leader up on a pedestal and saying, well, you should be amazing, but I'm expecting you to fall any moment. I'm expecting you to make a mistake. I'm not getting too close. Oh, so you think you're better than we, you know, just the ordinary one. So we can think in the life of the church this weekend, yeah, we, we kind of put the spotlight on leadership. Nevertheless, it's important for us to look at that, this chapter and other parts of scripture as well, to understand what is it that really excites us and how to relate. Three pictures, really quick, headlines only. 
Paul helps us towards a healthy view of leadership with three images. And in so doing, in trying to address this issue with the church about how they view leaders, actually where Paul puts the spotlight, it's not in a sense on him and Apollos. He could have gone on to great detail about their, their different gifts and the different part they've had to play and different profile. You've got to understand, I've been doing it for a little bit longer, so, you know, Apollos might seem a little bit rough around the edges at times, or the other way around, blah 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 He doesn't do that. He puts the spotlight on God, and he puts the spotlight on what God is doing in the church. That sets the tone. He describes the church as God's field. That's the first picture. God's field. God brings new life. God brings seed. And that seed springs up. And so the church is a place of new life springing up. That he's in charge of. He causes it. We see it a number of times uh, between verses 5 and, uh, and, and verse 9. God made it go- grow. God gives the growth. God is at work, in other words. God is the, the active agent in everything that's happening. He's doing something. So when we see two people get baptised, we can just see it as two people getting wet with their clothes on. I think, well, just interesting, symbolic, slightly bizarre, if you've not seen that happen before. Um, I think it's just a, a human, religious activity no, no, we see it through this image. No, God's been at work. God's done something. God's come into two people's life and they've got saved. They've received his forgiveness. They're relating with him. They're knowing him. They're, they're responding to what God is saying to them. And so that's what Paul, Paul does at the outset. He says, look, God is at work. He says, as he goes on to elaborate on that, he says, look, therefore, see that God is aware of absolutely everything that needs to happen. He allocates different roles, different tasks to different people. He knows what's needed. He knows the different tasks that are involved. God is interested in producing a crop. So he, he says to somebody, would you sow? He says to somebody else, would you, would you irrigate? Would you... Would you kind of water the grounds? Sowing and watering are essential. They're not actually very technical. They don't need necessarily um, a PhD. Now, you can bet now someone comes up to me afterwards, I've just moved to Sheffield to do my PhD in irrigation. Great. <laughs> I hope it goes well. Nevertheless, for the purpose of looking at this uh, scripture and the passage at hand, I think, it's not really, really difficult. What's amazing is what God is doing. He gives the growth. He allocates these different roles. He rewards the workers. And so when Paul writes about himself and Apollos, what does he do? He says, what is Apollos? What? He doesn't even say who. He just says what? They're just, we're, we're just things, he's saying. We're just servants. Just, he uses a word that in Romans chapter 16 is used of Phoebe. Here it's used of 
Paul and Apollos. Elsewhere, it might be used of Timothy. He's not kind of saying, what you've got to understand is, here's the flow chart, here's the, the kind of organizational pyramid. There's somebody at the top who's like a CEO, and then kind of down from him, there might be a couple of assistants, and, and they fan out lots of tasks, and they tell the people at the bottom what to do. And if we just come with worldly human thinking, we look at the life of the church and think, well, that's what it's like, basically, isn't it? There are guys at the front, they're at the top, everything else fans down. And if you're, you know, you're welcome just to be ordinary punter down here somewhere uh, at the bottom. Uh, Paul is not saying that. I'm getting too carried away. Um, Paul is not saying that. He's saying, look, we're just, we're, we're servants together. We do different tasks, but we're fellow workers Actually, what Apollos does is just as essential as what I do. We're, we're in it together. We've got one purpose. He says, the Lord will reward each and every worker. Interesting that, on the basis of their work. Not necessarily what they produce. There can be some worker, there can be some uh, Christian leader, there can be some Christian, and they are working hard for the glory of God and not seeing a great deal of fruit. For years, for decades, just pouring their life in, pouring themselves in, watering, sowing, looking to bless and not seeing much grow as a result. And God rewards that person for all their labor. Someone else comes in, doesn't have to work that hard at all. But it's just, in the scheme of God, it's just that time when it's ready to bring in the harvest. And a couple of days, da-da, we're done, Wow! And we go to the person who's got all the success. You're the anointed one. You're the impressive one. You're right at the very top. God says, no, we're just, we're in it together. Paul says, we're in it together. Don't, don't try and kind of bump me up and knock Apollos down. Don't try and kind of elevate Apollos and disregard what I've done. We've just done what God's called us to do. So in the life of the church, how, how do we view those who lead? It's gotta be, in that way. We're not interested in titles. We're not interested in special car parking spaces that are just available for us. We're not interested in just a, a hierarchy. Sometimes that's the sort of thing that we feel can give us security. I want to know who is it who can tell me what to do. And I want to know who can I tell what to do. Where do I fit in this big pyramid? No, forget it. We don't want to slip back into that way of thinking. We don't want to regress in that way at all. We just want to honour what God is doing through different people, the part they have to play, the gift that they have to exercise. It's not about uh, promotion, advancing a career. It's not competing for prominence. It's not trying to grab the spotlight or the limelight. It's just, let's be excited by what God is doing. The church is God's field. He is producing a harvest amongst us. It's right for us to celebrate this weekend what God has done in this church in growing our eldership team by one. But let's be excited about what God is doing, causing life to spring up amongst a massive company of people who know that God is good and he's at work. Amen. Second point. (laughs) Um, The church is God's field. The church is God's Building. See that in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. He just moves on to a new image. And in this one, rather than emphasizing, look, God is at work. When he comes to consider the, the building, he's saying, Jesus Christ, crucified, is our foundation. 
The church is not built upon any other personality. The church is not built on Paul. Paul can describe himself as a master builder or an architect. He has this vision. He has this blueprint, if you like, in mind of what God wants to do in the church. And he can describe himself as a master craftsman. Nevertheless, it's not built on him. Paul is not the foundation. He's saying Jesus Christ is the foundation. And that's what he said um, earlier on when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The fact that life is springing up in the field... To, <laughs> To, to swap the metaphors just for a moment, is because Jesus Christ has been laid down as the foundation for this church, for this people. It's an amazing message. It's wonderful truth that God, in his wisdom, sent his son to die in our place that's what opens up life to us and we receive forgiveness from him we have to become a fool in our own eyes and in the eyes of the world to receive it but wow what wisdom what power this is what paul says a little bit further on or a little bit further back in in fact in 1 corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 says, uh, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The cross of Christ totally turns on its head the way the world thinks. Jesus dying by method of a Roman execution looks like utter defeat. Looks like complete failure and weakness, uselessness and emptiness. But... In actual fact, it's the power of God that brings forgiveness from God so that we can say, do you know what? I've got a new life. I had an old life where I was in charge, where I was condemned, when I was in opposition to God and where I was heading towards an eternity without him. But you know what? God broke in. He revealed to me what Jesus has done. I've received his forgiveness. I've received his grace. I've gone down into the pool. I've come back up to celebrate the fact for all of us to see I've got a new life. I've got a completely new future. I've got a completely new standing before God. That's where we start. But we can, we can regress. We can thank God for this wonderful gift of grace that we've received in Jesus, but we can start to to go backwards in our thinking. It says in Isaiah 53, he was like one, talking of Jesus, from whom men 
what turned their face away. And even now, for us, maybe if you've been walking with God for some time, there can still be that reflex to think, I want to turn my face away sometimes. Because to really look at the foundation, to really look at what Jesus done, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't, I know it doesn't look wise, it doesn't look powerful, it doesn't look impressive. And that's what we're built on, that's what the church is built on, goodness me. And sometimes we prefer to turn our, our face away, find other images that are more pleasing, more impressive, that maybe will kind of appeal a little bit more to the world. And their way of thinking. So no, saviour of the world died on a cross. And that's what the church is built upon. And that image of being God's building reminds us as well that the church is very much a work in progress. The foundation is laid, but there's now building work to take place. Paul's warning to us is be careful. Be careful how you build. What are you building with? It says in, in 1 Peter, it describes Jesus as the, the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the precious stone, the costly stone. And we're being encouraged here to, to build with costly materials that will stand the test. When the day of judgment comes, when fire comes, it will reveal, yeah, that, those precious stones just get refined. They, they, they don't vanish, they don't get consumed. If we build well, if we don't build well, we're saved. We enjoy God for eternity, but so much of what we gave our life to, so much of our, our efforts actually has just vanished, didn't last. Because we didn't build in the same way. We didn't build with costly materials. And sometimes that can be to do with our motives. Our motives were to assert ourselves, to, to build something for me. To do things my way, when actually, what's the foundation? A saviour who gave himself. A saviour who laid down his life. So if we're going to build, if you're leading something in life, this church, you are helping us to build. Be careful how you build. If you desire to lead, it says in scripture about, He who desires to be an overseer, desires a noble task. It's good to have godly aspiration. It's good also just to check ourselves and say, why do I want to lead? Where's that aspiration coming from? And I wonder if you, we really know we're learning to lead when actually we've started to consider giving up. Maybe that's what reveals that we've really learned to lead. Because we realize, actually, there's a cost. This involves laying my life down. This is uncomfortable. Now, there are times and seasons, aren't there, where we, we may have one task, we put it down, we pick up something else. God's within that. We're not called to just one thing all the way through. Yep, there are different seasons in life. But if you're here today and think, yeah, in this area of leading, you know, do you know what, I've considered giving up. That could be a hallmark of you're doing exactly the right thing. If Jesus could say, take this cup from me, and I don't want to draw too strong a comparison at all for him, utterly unique. But if he could say, take this cup from me, sometimes leading will involve, I don't want to do it, Lord. Could you find someone else? Is there any other way? 
And we come back again to consider, actually, I've got to lay my life down. I've got to lay my life down. That's what we're called to do. We're called to serve. What are Apollos and Paul? What are they? They are things. They are servants. They've got a task. They're fixed on God, on his activity. They're fixed on Jesus too. You should start saying amen quite a lot for a whole number of reasons. (laughs) And just very lastly, and perhaps briefly, we're reminded in this scripture as well. Not only is the church God's field where God is active, not only is it a building where Jesus Christ has been laid down as the foundation upon which we build, we see the nature of that building as well, that you are God's temple. Don't you know, Paul says any number of times in this letter, if you knew, if you, would, if you remembered, that might help you love each other a bit more. Because one of the issues in Corinth is they'd forgotten the fact that actually we don't now go to a temple. We're not interested in bricks and mortar. It's not a case of gathering to a special building and encountering God in the special sanctuary. It's like, no, we, the people, are the temple. God dwells in us. And sometimes what was happening in Corinth is people are just having a go at each other. People are squabbling. People are jealous. People are arguing. There are divisions. There's hostility. People are overlooking one another, not listening to one another, ignoring one another. And Paul's saying, don't you know? You yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. The church of God is, is special because he lives there. And sometimes when church feels like a bit of a building site, it's a work in progress, everything isn't utterly uh, perfect and polished, it's not the finished article, we can start just whatever our role, whether we're leading in some capacity or not, we can start to get irritated with one another. And at that point, we need to remember, they might be irritating, they might have wound you up. Their motives might not be perfect. But God's spirit lives in them. Take care. Build them up. Love them. Let's lay our lives down for one another. Let's, let's kind of see leadership in the right way. Let's have a, a high view of God and what he's doing. The reason we're excited this weekend is because of what God is doing amongst us. Oh, it just so happens we've grown our eldership team. But what really excites us is God in the house. God amongst his people. What really excites us is Jesus having laid down his life. What really amazes us is his love. What really amazes us is that he dwells amongst us by his Holy Spirit. Therefore, we're going to be careful. Therefore, we're going to love one another. Therefore, we're not going to lift leaders up onto a pedestal and think either celebrity or... Be careful... Join a church if you like your mates, but, but don't... Leaders, leaders are in a different category. Well, we've just been given a different task. We've all got different tasks to play. We don't have like big badges and labels. We're brothers. We're together. We're family. We're for each other. We're ordinary. We're just servants. And we're together seeing what God wants to do in this church, in this city, at this time.